Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, the editor at the Security Ledger. It's another busy week in the security world, from Russia's cyber tit-for-tat with Ukraine to the search for the missing Malaysian Boeing 777 airplane. Here to talk about the news of the week are two of the smartest security guys in the room. John Oberheide is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Duo Security, which is a multi-factor authentication firm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we've got Zach Lanier, a security researcher at Duo and a past podcast guest. John and Zach, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. So let's start uh, first with you two. You're both back from Vancouver and the CanSec West 2014 conference where you were both presenting, John, uh, about Android security. And Zach, you gave a presentation on the BlackBerry 10, which I think you had previewed here in an earlier podcast. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you guys were talking about out in Vancouver. Yeah, so the... um uh, title of our presentation was The Real Deal of Android Device Security, the Third Party. Um, we were kind of alluding to the fact that um, one of the biggest problems in mobile security is not necessarily the individual vulnerabilities that are discovered on the various platforms, but the extremely long time it takes for a disclosed vulnerability to get patched um, through a complicated ecosystem of, um, of Google, of OEM and handset manufacturers, and of the carriers um, and a patch eventually reaching a user's device. Um, so we had you know, a hypothesis around this, the extent of this problem, um, but we embarked on a few different projects over the past few years to kind of demonstrate um, how bad it was in, in the real world. Um, the first project was um, X-Ray, which was a, a DARPA-funded um, project through MUDGE's Cyber Fast Track program um, that we performed at, at, at Duo here. And um, what we did was release an, an application called X-Ray that ordinary users could download and assess whether the device was vulnerable to any sort of privilege escalation of vulnerabilities on the Android platform that could allow an attacker to take you know, complete control of their, their uh, device. Um, and at the time, when we launched it a little over a year ago, we found that there was you know, 50 to 60% of Android handsets in the world were um, vulnerable to um, such exploits. Um, so it was a, a, a pretty large issue um, that we thought, you know, maybe we could uh, make some progress and kind of chip that um, number down or kind of change the way people think about um, the, the mobile patching problem. Um, so in collaboration with um, a colleague, Colin Moliner at Northeastern University, uh, we developed a, um, a framework called PatchDroid, which allowed us to patch um, these vulnerabilities in memory, kind of a hot patching, uh, similar to what um, Determina and EI did on the desktop uh, platform back in the 90s when Microsoft was really slow at at releasing um, patches of vulnerabilities, we were able to do on the Android mobile platform. Um, And as kind of a a realization of that that framework, we released an app called uh, Rekey, which um, allowed users to patch the master key vulnerabilities that um, the Blue Box researchers disclosed uh, just prior to Black Hat last year so that, you know, your, your grandma could download this app, they could protect their own device um, and get to a patch state a lot faster than they would if they were just um, waiting for the patch from their, their um, individual carriers, which, you know, would take months or years to deliver. So these uh, is, is so is this an in-memory uh, patching tool? Um, is that the approach you guys are taking? Yeah, exactly. We didn't want to do anything that would, um, you know, potentially 
harm a user's device or break a user's device. So patching in memory allowed us to do it in a non non-persistent way. We never touched the um, you know system partition or any uh, persistent storage. It would just when your device booted up, Patchdroid would be the first um, thing that would launch, and it would patch um, what other vulnerabilities were present on your device. Um, so while we just released Rekey um, to address that one master key vulnerability, there's actually a, a number of other um, vulnerabilities that Patchdroid is capable of patching on the Android platform. Lots of folks, including yourself, have talked about the problem with the Android ecosystem, which is that it is somewhat siloed between Google, which does a pretty good job of updating the operating system, but then the handset makers and then the carriers on top of that, each of whom don't have much incentive to to um, push those patches out to their customers. Do you see that changing at all, or is this as, as big a problem as it was, you know, a year or two ago? I think there's kind of two sides to that. I think Google is pushing hard. Um, they're trying to modularize a lot of the um, operating systems so that they can control the updates and potentially patch areas that might have vulnerabilities. Um, sort of out of band without re relying on the OEMs or the carriers. Um, but on the other side, I think that the um, OEMs and carriers are even more focused now on, on differentiation of their handsets that they're selling. So they want to have the WizBank features. They're diverging further from the kind of Android open source um, project code base. And so all of those customizations not only may introduce new vulnerabilities, but it also increases the amount of time it takes for them to um, get a patch integrated, re-customize their entire um, uh, sort of system, and then deliver it to users. So I think, I think Google could be a lot uh, sort of stronger in their stance on, on um, what they expect from the carriers. Um, they did have a, a few initiatives in the past to try to incent carriers to, to push out patches quicker, but I don't think it really had any teeth to the, the program, so there wasn't a lot of uh, motivation or incentive for the carriers. No, and I mean, and in fact, in, in North America, I don't know how things are in Europe, but, you know, many of the carriers are going to these, you know, built these programs where you're, you're automatically getting upgraded after whatever it is, a year, or a year and a half. You do have to wonder whether part of that is just saying, let's not even deal with these you know, device maintenance and updates because they're just going to be getting rid of the device and, you know, maybe we can just you know, kind of carry them along on whatever version of the OS the, the thing came with and by the time they want to update, we'll be moving them to a new device. Yeah, that's where the, the sort of inverted incentives are where, you know, carriers could, on one hand, spend a lot of time and resources to patch your ancient old device that, you know, you've had for a year or two um, but that's expensive for them, so why not not patch it and instead incent you to buy the latest and greatest version that's coming out because that makes them money instead of costing them money. So there really is no incentive for them to invest in, in sort of security patching. It's a risky business for them if they roll out a faulty patch and, you know, brick a couple hundred thousand users of them. That's, that's real lost revenue as opposed to if users are getting breached, that's not going to cost them any revenue unless it's turns into a you know an enormous spectacle or enormous um, sort of a, a infection. It's kind of like the Gillette disposable razor business model, you know, but for for phones, you know, like what? Right, yeah. right. Like we'll just you know just throw it away and we'll give you a new one. 
Yeah, we'll make we'll make uh we'll make crappier blades so that uh you know you have to buy new ones more often. Do you know you'll have five phones all <laughs> stuck together? <laughs> Actually, I got a, a shaving attachment for my Galaxy S5. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Okay, Zach, tell us about BlackBerry 10. I know you gave us a little bit of a preview of this uh, when we talked a few weeks ago, but uh, just remind us. What, talk to us about BlackBerry 10. Why should we care about BlackBerry 10, and, and what's, what's uh, the security story around that operating system? There are 10, 10, uh, all 10 users of BlackBerry 10 devices. Uh, <laughs> this is very important. Our talk was um, I, I gave with uh, my colleague, well, my my. My buddy slash uh, former colleague uh, Ben Nell um, from Acuvon, uh, ours was no apology required deconstructing BB10. And uh, yeah, as mentioned before, it was really a more methodology slash um, exploratory presentation. So we talked more about what we did rather than what we found, but there were things that we found. Um, so, you know, BlackBerry 10 itself is based on QNX, which is a real time operating system, a microkernel. Uh, real-time operating system. So QNX itself has been used in things like the space shuttle. It's used in, you know, power facilities and happens to be the core for Apple's new CarPlay, um, which is weird since it's not something they developed, um, but it's going to be skinned to have that kind of iOS feel. So, um, but as, as the core of BB10, uh, what one of the things that we, we did find in our research was there's a lot of sh sort of shared attack surface, so things that that QNX didn't really address in its core, um, especially since BlackBerry had bought them so many years ago. Those those things sort of emerged. Um, strange nuances, strange things about you know like interprocess communication channels and things of that nature. Uh, some of the legacy bugs that we we'd identified in some previous research against um, the BlackBerry playbook. They they sort of presented themselves again in a you know in, in BB10 and in uh, Tablet OS as well as some of the, the things that BlackBerry bolted on, things like balance, which lets you do BYOD stuff and, you know, make sure that everything that's stored in your work your work container is all encrypted and, and everything. But the services that facilitate that um, are a little uh, at times questionable um, from a security angle. Um, but we also found some really interesting things around just like when we were conducting reconnaissance to try and find out more about BB10. Um, Google Google dorks, things of that nature, uh, ended up coming across uh, a file dump from an actual BlackBerry employee, including internal bugs that hadn't been publicized, uh, unreleased firmware images for the device. So that really, uh, that was a nice little nugget to find on the internet. Um, <laughs> because why, why find the bugs when you can just find the bug report that hasn't been published and the bugs are still open? Ugh. But really, um, it, it was it was just sort of a... a how how we took this black box and decided to learn as much about it as possible and how that, that sort of approach slash methodology can be applied in so many other ways. Um, especially if you're, if people are running into QNX and they've never worked with it before, some of the things that we, we identified as people who had never actually worked with QNX until the BlackBerry playbook came along, uh, you know, they could, they could kind of learn, learn these lessons and, and, and find bugs on their own. Um, but and it's also interesting because the timing is is auspicious since, as we just mentioned, it's now being brought to the forefront as a viable uh, platform for in-card entertainment or infotainment systems, and it's also being pushed heavily by BlackBerry as the new uh, as an Internet of Things 
platform of choice. So, yeah. you know, Q and X will probably find its way into even more of our daily lives if uh, if they continue on this trajectory. It seems as if that that is part of the security story right now, which is all of these embedded and real time operating systems, some of which have been around, some of which are new, are going to start popping up. So we're not going to have that. We've really been living in a monoculture for much of the last fifteen or twenty years, thirty years with Windows, but um, the the uh, options out there for device makers are much more varied now. My sense listening to you, though, is that some of these operating systems, even if they've been around, maybe have not received the kind of scrutiny that we're used to in the Windows or OS X uh, world. Well, certainly, and, and it's important to look at the lineage of some of these operating systems, where they've been used. So QNX, I think as I explained to someone a couple of days ago in talking about QNX, when you have like a nuclear reactor and all of the systems in there run QNX and everything runs as root or there's no concept of, of traditional sort of operating system security practices, that's probably generally okay. Let's just pretend that those systems are air gaps. They're not on, they're not on the internet, which we know we've learned unfortunately that sometimes they are. But let's just pretend that they're not. Well, your control then is the guy with the, the, the big man with the machine gun who stands next to the card reader that would even let you get access to that system to begin with. So it's not really a good practice, but the, the paradigm was so different. It was squeezing the security balloon in a different direction. You had physical security. You had all these other access controls right. that prevented you from ever getting to that horribly insecure uh, nuclear control computer. Um, now that they're making their way into general purpose, you know, general purpose devices um, or purpose built devices that happen to be, say, accepting applications from an app store. Uh, in fact, I just was reviewing some documentation about the QNX, uh, QNX car platform, which is the one that, that was used in Audi, for instance, and uh, somehow managed to overlook the fact that last year they announced support for HTML5. Oh, and also that they, they can run Android applications. So not that we've ever seen anything go wrong with yeah. horribly insecure yeah. Android applications that no. hold your data or you know, run a privilege escalation exploit, um, as John was just mentioning. But, you know, that's you, now you, you've got just this interestingly weird, weird attack surface, the shared attack surface that's now being introduced into into QNX and, and these other operating systems that are going to run everything from your toaster to your, you know, your baby monitor. I think it's also like a, a difference in, Zach was talking about the lineage of the operating system, but also the lineage of the, the industry where, you know, the, the folks in like automotive um, and other sort of sectors have no experience in, in security, really. Um, I was talking to a few friends at a a local automotive company, you know, here in the Detroit area that, that develop engine firmwares and, um, are now interfacing with infotainment systems. And one, they were totally surprised that I've ever heard of a CAN bus. And two, they were absolutely floored when I was like, um, you know, you guys really shouldn't be connecting the CAN bus to the infotainment system. And, and they were like, wait, why? I, I don't understand. Like, we need to, you know, interface and display all this useful engine information. We need that you're pressing the brake right now. Yeah, we exactly. need to, I can also just magically press the brake for you. We need right. to display, you know, diagnostic information to the, the infotainment system. And I'm trying to explain the attack surface of um, all the media that is processed by the infotainment system, the Wi-Fi interfaces that they have to sync with your 
your laptop so you can you know sync your the bluetooth right right onto your car yeah even the 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 tpms the tire pressure monitoring system that you know communicates with your with your tires um just a lot of interfaces uh there's a a really good paper from some academics um as part of the autosec.org group that you know did a very scientific and and security focused study of what does the attack surface of a modern automobile look like? And so they went through all of those, those various interfaces and telematics and so on and just showed, wow, like this is, uh, you know, crazy amount of attack surface that's exposed um, both sort of internally as well as like close proximity as well as like wide area um, type attacks. So when you really want to play Angry Birds Malware Edition on your in-dash entertainment system, <laughs> Consider the implications. Yeah, exactly. Not be able to stop your car. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, right. So then, then Google and Google Play become the gatekeeper to potentially uh, malicious uh, uh, software making it onto you know all kinds of devices, uh, some of which might be moving at eighty or ninety miles an hour. There's no bugs in uh, Google Play either. Right, 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 right. Notable this week, the full disclosure mailing list, um, which, you know, was a mainstay of the, uh, you know, online computer security world. I know as a as a reporter, it was a frequent source of stories, particularly earlier in my in my reporting days. It had it had kind of fallen on hard times. And and this week they shut it down. I I wanted to get your reminiscences or thoughts about full disclosure and, and what the what the end of that mailing list really says about uh, what's happened to the vulnerability industry? I would say, thank goodness, uh, at least in the, the recent history. Um, it was kind of a, a mailing list full of, of trash and trolling that really didn't provide much value. Um, of course, the, the kind of legacy was much stronger. And I, I think it's kind of a, a interesting, interesting commentary there about where the security industry has evolved um, or how it has evolved. And um, the fact that uh, a lot of these kind of like vibrant mailing lists like full disclosure, bug track, where the latest research was being disclosed and discussed, now have gone underground, uh, maybe been commercialized a little bit, even, you know, lists like like Daily Dave, mostly Dave, um, talking about his favorite Buffy episodes. So, you know, it's just kind of been a change in kind of the security culture. So it's, it's, it's a case of, so if you look at, uh, this is Zach, I mean, kudos for having, like, put up with all, all of the crap that's come across full disclosure for so many years. But to John's point about it, it it had it was for the longest time like oh did you go read FD full disclosure right did you go read FD look at this thing that got posted on FD and it was usually where everything from like latest like latest bugs to uh, to actual exploits to actually relevant discussion but also people getting doxxed right um, you know things getting posted now everything just goes on pastebin but uh, I mean it was actually an outlet for both people who were doing legitimate security research, people who were doing, you know, not so legitimate security research, but also just a, a finger on the pulse of the industry slash the community slash the anti-industry. And it's just gotten saturated with just, you know, nonsense bugs that are just not really that important. Right. Um, I did note the irony of that shutdown coming, you know, just days after, you know, out at Cansec West, you know, $850,000 in uh, bounties, basically, for security vulnerabilities. And, you know, full disclosure is, you know, a, a, a holdover from a time when, 
you know, the expectation was if you found something, uh, you would just give away that information, whether you gave it away to the public or gave it away in private to the company. But there was obviously um, a very different uh, feeling about, you know, the value of information like that and also talent like that today, right? I mean, it's a whole different world. Yeah, I think there was a really um, sort of interesting um moment that happened at CanSec and, you know, uh, I think Zach was presenting, be- presenting before um, Tarjay um, from Asimus and we were presenting after Tarjay and at the end of Tarjay's talk where he, um, you know, provided a lot of um, great work in looking at um, Apple's uh, PRNG that they use um, to uh, kind of bootstrap some of their security mitigations. Where That's a random number generator, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So lots of the randomness that drives um, their stack cookies, ASLR, other mitigations um, are derived from that. You know, at the end of the, the talk, someone from the audience asks, out of curiosity, like, oh, did you, you know, disclose this to Apple? And he was like, uh, well, no, except for, like, you know, 10 minutes ago when I just discussed it with you guys. Um and, you know, he got kind of a round of applause for that, but he made a good point that, you know, his title was posted on CanSec's um, agenda for for months. And um, he said, you know, if, if Apple cared to reach out to me, I would have provided them information. I wouldn't have, you know, disclosed my slide deck. But, you know, hey, like, I'm not going to go jump through hoops in order to um, give a talk that I want to give and present my, my research. You know, I'm, I'm happy to share it with anybody if they if they take the initiative to reach out. Um, but, you know, it's kind of just saying, like, well, you know, it's, it's kind of the new standard for, um, um, for disclosure. I think we've evolved past, um, you know, certain, certain forms. Right. I'm not a bored teenager in my bedroom. Like, I'm a professional. If you want to talk to me, then, then contact me like a professional, right? Yeah. And I, th- I think it's really important that companies have that, that kind of um, well-founded relationship with the research community and have a well-defined, um, uh, whether it's a bounty program or... Um, you know, vulnerability handling process. Um, that way, you know, people might be incented to report the vulnerability to you in advance and um, will want to work with you and might decide to report it to you as opposed to uh, going to public markets like um, like the Ponium Contest or, you know, slighter gray markets um, where you might get, um, you know, larger financial compensation for your, your, your efforts. Exactly. Uh, John and Zach, thank you both for taking the time to speak with me and uh, talk on the Security Ledger podcast this week. I, as always, really enjoyed talking to both of you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's my pleasure, guys, and I, I look forward to doing it again, okay? Okay.